we are on the quest to have the quietest year of our lives. And if you're joining us for the first time this week, don't worry, it's not too late for you. You can still have the quietest year of your life. And we didn't just make this up like, hey, it would be great to have a quiet year in 2020. No, we we got this from the scripture. See, the Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the church at Thessalonica, writes to them these words, aspire to live quietly. Let's look at it in a little more context. I'm in chapter four of 1 Thessalonians, and he says this, but we urge you, brothers, to do this, that was to love each other more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And so from that verse or that line, aspire to live quietly, we've drawn our entire opening series, and we're on this quest to have the quietest year of our lives. Now, in week one, we looked at what quiet is not. Quiet is not weakness. It's not isolation. It's not passiveness or passive aggressiveness. It's not a lack of ambition. And then we looked at what quiet is. The word quiet there uh, is both internal, so to be at rest or to cease, and then it's also external, relationally, Uh, being quiet in our relationships. Last week, we looked at that in more detail because the Apostle Paul goes into more detail. After he says, aspire to live quietly, his next line is, mind your own business. Did we all do better this week in minding our own business? Okay, maybe. It's all right, you can keep getting better. I hope at some point in this week, you said to yourself, if you were here last week, That's not my business. And you turned and you walked the other way. And last week, we looked at three areas that we tend to not mind our own business in our speech, uh, through gossip or slander, in the way we compare ourselves to other people, which we said mostly happens on social media, and then also in the way that we might have a tendency to meddle or to put our nose where it doesn't belong. And one way to have quiet, well, it's just to stop doing those things, bring some quiet to our lives. Well, this week, we're going to look at Paul's next line in this verse. It says this, work with your own hands, or work with your hands. Now, we see this line, and you might think, what does this have anything to do with God? What does this have anything to do with my Christian life, to work with your hands? Why is that line in there, and how does this apply to the gospel? Well, we have to remember Paul's motivation for why he's telling the Thessalonians to live quietly. It's kind of concentric circles. Uh, We live quietly first because there's some benefit to our own lives. Like when we quiet ourselves, we can hear God's voice better. And then we live quietly because it's beneficial for the body of Christ. When there's less gossip and less slander and less meddling and less comparing, then we can be better brothers and sisters in Christ to each other. So the church can operate as it's supposed to operate, like a family. And then continuing to go out, and really most importantly, we live quietly because it advances the kingdom of God. At the very end, Paul kind of hints at what his real motive is when he says, so that uh, you might win outsiders. So those who are not in Christ might be impressed by how you're living quietly and might be drawn to Jesus. So ultimately, we live quietly. Yes, it's good for us. It's good for the body of Christ, but it brings glory to God and the integrity of his name. 
That's why we live quietly. And that's why Paul is giving all of the instruction that he's giving here. Remember, he's writing to a real church, a real group of people. And we're reading it 2,000 or so years later, and we're looking into it and saying, okay, without changing it, how do we apply it to modern day? How do we live quietly? How is this beneficial for our church? How will this make us better as a group of reaching people for Christ, of advancing the glory of God and his name? Work with your hands. Contextually, here's what's happening. There's some in the church in Thessalonica that thought that Christ's return was imminent. And so as a result, they decided, why are we even working? Let's just stop. Jesus is coming back. I don't like my job, so I'm not going to go. I don't recommend that. And so some of them were doing that. And after a while, uh, they refused to go get jobs and to work with their own hands. So the rest of the church was having to pay their way. And their mindset was, um, I don't need to work. Jesus is coming back. You guys have more money than I do, or particularly the wealthy Christians. So why don't you guys just pay for everybody and I'll just be idle. That was the mindset that Paul was writing into. And so to them, he says, Work with your hands. Go get a job. That was the modern translation. Work with your hands. Now, this word work, the first part of it, work is um, an idea that is ingrained in Scripture from the very beginning. God creates man, uh, and then later he forms woman, and to both he gives an instruction to work. Then there's kind of a reset happens with the flood and God puts Noah to kind of repopulate, recreate, and he gives him a mandate to go work. And then he forms the, uh, the covenants and there's an instruction to them to work. And then Jesus shows up on earth and he works. And then the apostle Paul and the early church work. Like this idea of work is ingrained throughout the scriptures. It was in 2012, a great philosopher and modern scholar said this, working is the best medicine. That was actually a Lindsay Lohan tweet. She's not a scholar, but she was right in this particular case, that working is a good medicine. We've been wired for it to be working with our hands, to, to have purpose when we wake up to do something. I was discussing this text with a college student. He said, it's interesting. The, the less I have on my schedule, the worse grades I get. Maybe you can relate. When I have nothing to do, I get nothing done. When I have much to do, he was saying, I get more done. Why? Because we're, we're wired to work. It's a part of who God made us to be. Now, I'm not saying that means you have to um, love your job. Many of us or statistics would say people don't always love their jobs, but there is something for the Christian that's even underneath it. The apostle Paul says it this way, work and everything you do is heartily unto the Lord. Like your work isn't for that boss that you might not like or the job or the, the corporation or the nameless person who you know, makes you be in there, but you're actually working unto God in everything that you do. And it's not just the paid work that we do because in our culture, you know, we have this idea of retirement where we stop working, but it's in all that we do. 
and all that we do, that there's, a, uh, there's something that God has created for us to do. Now, Paul isn't just talking about work, like uh, he's not just saying to them, hey, it's good for you to, to work because it's good for you. He's telling them work uh, because it's actually ruining the church and therefore God's name because you're not. Let's look at what he says there. So in um, 1 Thessalonians, this was Paul's first letter, he says, work with your hands. Then in the second letter, he expounds upon that. I think the natural assumption is they didn't get the message. And so he writes his second letter and he takes those four little words, work with your hands, and he writes a whole paragraph. As if to say, guys, I really need you to get this. Let's look at what he says in his second letter. He says, now we command you. In the first letter, he was urging them. The second letter, he's commanding them. Something needs to change. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's why Paul writes that. There's some modern confusion that um, some people look and they say, well, I don't really like Paul. I don't like the Bible, but I don't like Paul. Now, well, Paul was an apostle. And when he writes in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, what he's saying is, uh, I'm giving this instruction with my hand, right? But this is actually Jesus's instruction. I'm writing on his behalf as an apostle. And so this is what Jesus is saying to his church through Paul. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. That's I-D-L-E, not I-D-O-L, in idleness. Now this word idle, in our culture and in our understanding, um, it typically means inactive, and it does mean that in this text. Um, but that word also, the, the original word, also means undisciplined or irresponsible. And so Paul is saying uh, that you keep away from any brother who is walking undisciplined, irresponsibly, or inactive, and not in accord with the traditions that you received from us. Now, what are those traditions? Well, those traditions are all the way back to the beginning that I told you that God wired us to be workers and to be about doing something that work is good for us. It's good for the soul. We know this. I mean, the term unemployment depression is like a well-accepted term in our culture. We know that, that inactivity can actually be damaging to our soul. And that sometimes what we need is just to, to reactivate before I move on, let me just encourage you, if you're in a season right now that feels idle, like you want more than what you have, you want to be able to do more than what you can, uh, to take this morning as an encouragement to begin to actively look for ways to step out of idleness. I believe idleness is, is a trap of the devil. In idleness, he likes to take over our, uh, not take over, but he likes to influence the, the way we begin to think about ourselves. Depression can settle in. Uh, in one verse here, um, Paul talks about one of the damaging effects of idleness is that we get bored with our own lives, so we hop into everyone else's lives through gossip and slander. That idleness is a, is a tool of the enemy uh, to damage our souls. There was a season in leading the church um, where just the, the workload of the church just, uh, it wasn't enough, quite frankly, to like fill my week. And so I found myself very bored. And me bored is not a good thing. I, I, like, I get antsy. I start bouncing. Lindsay's like, you got to leave. Just get out of the house. Go take a walk. And uh, in that, we started this little Tuesday morning Bible study as a response of my own idleness. 
And uh, that group now, we kind of joke, it's um, college students, retired, and the temporarily unemployed in this Bible study. And uh, we meet every Tuesday morning, and there's about 10 of us now, um, ranging from, I think, 20 to 79 uh, in this Bible study. Uh, We said we need a couple more people to fill in all of the decades. Uh, So if we have any 90-year-olds out there, come and join us. Um, we actually we also need a teenager. Uh, and so when we're filling this with this group of people who um, on that day and in that moment could just as easily, uh, because they don't have like a routine work schedule anymore, be at home watching Netflix, right? They could be watching Netflix during that time, but instead we're together um, and we're studying the scriptures. They actually helped me write my sermons and, uh, and they're making incredible gospel impact. They could be at home watching TV or doing whatever else. And them stepping out of idleness in that, and it's kind of been like one by one, it's been added, has been good for the soul and good for all of us. And it's good for you because they help me write better sermons. It's having an impact on them, on the church, and the name of God. Now, in our culture, we're very good at calling out busyness. We're not so good at calling out idleness. It's just as damaging. And so if you are in a season of idleness, for whatever reason, let me encourage you. Aspire to work with your hands. Find something. If it's volunteer, if it's free, whatever, to stir you from that and to make a gospel impact. Now, Paul continues. He says, For you yourselves know that how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. He's being pretty clear here. He's saying, Do what we did. So Paul's saying, when we showed up uh, to this church in Thessalonica to to plant it or to minister to it, um, we didn't live like this. We didn't live idly. We weren't unorganized. We weren't undisciplined. We weren't inactive. We didn't live irresponsibly. No, we showed up and we worked hard. And we have to understand Paul's motivation for everything, for the way he lived his life. And I think when Paul says, imitate us, when he says that to this group, or if we were to um, say that to all of us, like for us to imitate Paul, we can only do it if we have a similar motivation as Paul did. And Paul makes this clear throughout his writings that he had one chief aim in life, to maximize his gospel impact. That the aim of his life was to maximize what he would do for the kingdom of God and the advancement of the gospel. That when he woke up every morning, he didn't think, how do I, how do I maximize my own life? How do I make my own name famous? Uh, how do I build my own empire? How do I get done what I want? No, he had one chief aim, maximize his gospel impact. Does that look differently for a, a single 20-year-old than a, um, a, a you know, middle-aged man with four kids and a full-time job? Of course. Of course it does. But in your season, can you say this? That your chief aim in life is to maximize your gospel impact. That you arrange your life, your schedule, your talent, your time, your money, your everything around one aim, maximizing 
your impact on the kingdom of God. Might that mean uh, that for your season right now, that's intentionally raising great children and loving your spouse? Yes, that might mean that. For a 20-year-old who doesn't have kids or a spouse, it's going to mean something much different. But the question is that your season, with the amount of time you have and the talent and everything else, is your chief aim maximizing your gospel impact because that's Paul's chief aim. And so when he says imitate us, he is saying that to people who he's making an assumption that your chief aim is my chief aim or it's the same. That's the only way this makes sense. Otherwise, we look at Paul and go, you're crazy. Ah, but if our motivation is the same, then we look at Paul and say, okay, what do I need to learn? How do I need to be challenged to grow so that I can be like that? He says, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's second part here, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Yeah, let me keep going. But with toil, we'll come back to that line. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would, not, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Well, that's pretty strong. In the earlier line, um, when I told you uh, to, or when I read that if anyone is walking in idleness, you should stay away from them, maybe your ears pricked up and you're like, whoa, that sounds kind of harsh. That line there um, is a line that um, if you've studied the Bible a lot, you, you would know that as a term of church discipline. And the idea of church discipline is this. You do everything you can to love somebody. To, to show them that you're on your side, uh, their side, that you're walking with them, uh, that you do everything you can to get them to change wrong behavior. And the very, very last resort, when they refuse completely, is, is to break fellowship or relationship with them. It's not the first, it's not the second thing, it's the last thing. Paul even says at the end, those who are continuing to walk in this way, remember, they are a brother. They're a family member, not an enemy. We love them, and we want to see them change. And here then, Paul is saying, when we showed up to camp, um, look how we lived. Our main aim was to maximize our gospel impact. And so instead of showing up and demanding of the church body um, payment and salary and compensation, uh, Paul says, we deserved it, but we didn't take it. We didn't even want it. Why? Because our aim was to maximize our gospel impact. We didn't want to be a burden to the church. We didn't want to show up and say, hey, I'm Paul. I'm one of the most famous apostles. This is my salary. Now I'm here and y'all need to work hard to pay me. So instead, what did Paul do? He started a business while he was there ministering. He said night and day. He would work, and then he'd preach and pastor and shepherd. Then he'd work, and then he'd go back and forth doing both. Why? To maximize his gospel impact. Paul even says this in here. He says, I don't want to be a burden to you. I don't want to be a burden to the church. That's very clear what he's talking about there, by the way. He's talking about a financial burden. 
He's saying, I don't want for you guys to feel like you have to pay my way, so I'm going to work my way while I'm doing it. And that way, Paul was going from a burden to a blessing. Imagine this. He's saying, instead of taking money, I'm going to work and earn my money, and then the money that I earn, I'm actually going to give to you. It's like a double benefit. Why? Because his chief aim was to maximize his gospel impact. When Paul is saying, work with your hands, there's an element of it where he's saying, work is good for you. There's a blessing in it. God's wired you for it. It's good for you emotionally. When he says, work with your hands, there's an element of it. He's saying, it's good for you relationally because when you're bored, you do dumb things. Ah, But there's this other part of it. Paul's making clear here where he's saying, when you work with your hands, when you produce income, when you create value in the marketplace, you can now be a blessing to the body of Christ. Can I ask you, is that part of your motivation when you wake up and go to work? Is it part of your mindset when you go to work that I'm not just working for me. I'm not just working for my family. I'm actually working for the advancement of the kingdom of God. I am working to be a blessing to the body of Christ. See, as you read through this letter in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, what you're seeing is Paul instructing on how the church begins to operate. And right now, from this sermon up until now, uh, we're, we're even going to take like another fork in the road. Because what I'm about to talk about, um, there's a difference. If you look at church as something that you consume, that's like a product that you just consume, then, then the road that we're about to go down won't make sense to you. It won't make sense to you. But if you look at church as a family that you're a part of, then what I'm about to, to walk down will make way more sense. And so I get that. And by the way, if you're on the first one, um, I'm still glad you're here. Don't go anywhere. Stick around. But I think this this other road that we're going to walk down is how we're supposed to see the family of Christ, the church. And so Paul's mindset here is this. I'm going to work really hard so that I can be a blessing, not a burden. Now, this word burden, uh, maybe that seems like a harsh term. Maybe you're out there thinking right now, well, well, am I a burden to the church? Am I a burden because I don't give as much as that person? Am I a burden because I had to ask for help someday? Uh, am I a burden because I don't give anything? Like, am I a burden to the church? And, and maybe there's this thing inside of you that like, that doesn't feel good. To some, I would say this. Here's what we're not talking about. I'm not talking about right now those who are in a hard season financially those who are sick or hurting, those who are new to the body. I'm not talking about um, those who uh, are in like an exceptional rare moment in life um, where, uh, where they have nothing. That's not who Paul was talking about. What Paul was talking about was consistent people who almost with pride or deference said, I'm not going to play a role in helping the body. I'm not stepping into that. Y'all take care of me instead of me being a part of taking care of everybody. 
consistently over time. As a church, from the beginning, and we say this routinely around here, the primary responsibility that I have as a pastor and shepherd of this church and the primary responsibility that, that the elders and I share, the primary responsibility um, that we collectively then have as, a, have as a body when it comes to financial things in our church is to make sure that the needs of our church body are taken care of. It is the primary responsibility of the church. It means the primary responsibility of the church is not to make sure that we have a beautiful building. The primary financial responsibility of the church is not to make sure that we have really nice lights. The primary financial responsibility of the church is to make sure that the needs of those who are in the church family are taken care of. And we take that exceptionally serious because I think that's what God's gonna measure us on as leaders. I don't think he's gonna say, how big was your building? He is going to say, did her rent get paid? And see, when you begin to see church as a family, so if you're new around here, you just get to, this is like a family meeting that you get to watch in on. If you are a part of the church family, then the way this is supposed to work is that because the gospel compels us, we step out of our idleness and we begin to say, how do I maximize my gospel impact at this season of my life when it comes to this area of money? How do I maximize it? How do I play a role in the church family? And Paul seems to indicate that the thing that will stop us from being able to do that is idleness. Now, I don't think we have this problem in our church. I don't think, not I think, we don't. We don't have the problem in our church where there's people like, I'm not working, y'all give me money. Doesn't exist in our body. Um, but the word idle means unstructured, undisciplined, and irresponsible. So let me challenge you a little bit as your pastor. Again, this is those of you who, this is your church. Unstructured, undisciplined, or irresponsible living can be just as sinful as any of the other things we would list. Challenging, yes. Biblical, yes. So here would be my encouragement to you. If it's knowledge that you need on how to better handle this area of your life, go get it. Go get it. You know how I told you at the beginning that you don't exercise church discipline until after many, many warnings or many, many of this? Let's just pretend that every time we've ever talked about this before it didn't happen, this is step one. It's the first time. Let's pretend. And here's my encouragement. That if you need to gain knowledge and how to handle money better, go get it. It's a godly thing to do. We'd love to help you. That's why we offer Financial Peace University. But if you get to the second one, there might be some issues that need to be dealt with underneath, the irresponsible one. It might mean excessive spending in areas it might mean you haven't yet dealt with your need to compare yourself to everybody else, and so you have to buy bigger and better and newer. By the way, that life is not free. 
If you have to make your spending purchases based upon your neighbors, you're not free. Now, the Christian makes their spending purchase based off of this question. How do I maximize my gospel impact? I don't care how nice your car is. I don't care how big your house is. I care about the answer to this question. Are you maximizing your gospel impact? See, what's the picture here at the end? The picture here at the end that Paul is getting to is a group of Christians who are disciplined and structured in their time, in their energy, and in their money in such a way that every one of them is moving to a place of not being a burden, but being a blessing. In other words, of giving more than they're taking. And that is a sign of maturity. I do admit this to that Tuesday morning Bible study. I said, I think this year, 2019, last year, was the first Christmas that wasn't a net gain for me. I was like, that's kind of embarrassing. I'm 33 years old. I have very generous people in my life. But I realized, like, there has to come a point of maturity where my Christmas needs to cost me more than than it benefits me. There's a point of spiritual maturity where you look and you say, I want to give more to the body than I take. Again. Are there seasons of difficulty? Yes. And that's when the church is there operating in its way that says, I got you. I've got you in your season of difficulty. Why? Because I've set up in my my life in such a way now to be generous. I've set up my life in such a way to be a blessing. So what does this look like when it plays out? It looks like a group of Christians, a group of people who wake up and are ready to be active, who wake up and are ready to go to work, not just to take care of their families, that is your responsibility, of course, but also because they know I'm advancing the kingdom of God. Scripture gives us a path to follow in this. It starts with uh, something called the biblical tithe, where 10% of what we earn goes back to the body of Christ that we're a part of. If I came to Christ at a late age, I think this would be the hardest thing for me to swallow about being a Christian, just being honest. But I was fortunate enough that I grew up in a family where this happened regularly, and so it was never a thought for me. I understand for other people who didn't grow up in this, this is one of those like, what moments? Why? Why? Let me give you a couple of reasons why. It's a way of saying, God, I trust you. I've said, this for, I've said this over and over. Our favorite verse on trust, trust in the Lord your God with all your heart, or lean not into your own understandings and all your ways acknowledge him. That one in Proverbs 3. You know what the next verse is about? Money. We love the first part. We hate the second part. It's a way of saying, God, I trust you. But it's also a way of saying, I love the people in my church. And when they hit a dry season, I want them to know that I've set my life up to take care of them. That's why God created this path, this system. Are you sinning if you don't tithe? I don't think so, but maybe. And let me explain that. Let me explain that. The maybe is for a group of people who are like Paul is instructing here and who are saying, I refuse to play a role in the body of Christ. 
It's not because they can't. It's not because they're unable. It's not because they're in a hard season. But they refuse. They've dug in and they've said, God, you don't get to touch this part of my life. That's not freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ is you're so overcome by the gospel of Jesus that you open up your whole life, every part of it, and you say, you can have your way with all of it. The end game for Paul, and I think the end game for us then, is that we are a body of people, a church family, that sets our lives up in such a way. And for some of you, you're like, that's going to take me like four years to get to that. Great. Start today. Others of you, you could pop in right now, and you probably wouldn't even miss a beat. Others of you, it might just mean rearranging some things. But the end hope would be that we got to a place as a church body where we are loving and taking care of each other in that way, in such great ways that that when other people come into our body, they see what Paul was hoping the Thessalonian church would be, a church that was quietly working hard, minding their own business and loving and taking care of each other. See, maybe, maybe as a church, we don't need to be quite, so and I say church, I mean like large church, like Christians in America. Maybe, maybe we don't need to be so loud in our opinions all the time on what we think about certain things. Maybe we don't need to be all over social media slamming the evil of this and that or those people and that people. And maybe what we need to do is just quietly mind our own business, work with our hands, and set up our lives in such a way that we love each other and take care of each other in a way that makes people go, wow. And I think that's the church that Jesus came to plant. We all have a role to play in this. We all have a role. In closing, we're going to take communion today. And here's why we're going to take communion. Two reasons. The first reason we're going to take communion together as a group today is to remind us that everything we just talked about only makes sense when you view life through the lens of the gospel. You see, we're not like some social group. We're not like a nonprofit organization that takes care of people. We're not humanitarian aid. We're a church. And so everything that I've just talked about only makes sense when, when you and I arrive at this place and say, uh, I was dead in sin and Christ made me alive. The, the thing that, that makes all of this come together is that we are unified and we are now a collective identity as a body united only through Christ. That at the heart of all of this and at the bottom of all of this is a, a man, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died on a cross and rose from the grave. That the only reason that Lindsay and I set aside 10% of our, our income that we make in the church or out of the church, the only reason Lindsay and I buy $2,500 cars, right? Um, uh, no one needs to like, buy us a car or anything. I'm not saying that. The only reason we buy stuff like that is so that 
We can say, we love you, and we want to be a, a benefit, not a burden. And the only reason we feel that way is because Jesus changed us. Because all of us could pursue a life where we wake up and say, I want to maximize my impact today. But then Jesus comes in and changes everything, and you go, I just want to maximize my gospel impact. I just want to see the church grow. I want to see people come to know Christ because all of this stuff doesn't matter in the end. And so we take communion today just to remind ourselves why all of this happens. What's the deep motivation here? Jesus changed us. He redeemed us and then he unified us in a body. Oh, and so for that reason, for that reason, man, personally, I wake up every day and I say, how, how can I maximize my gospel impact? Lindsay and I sit down and we look at our budget. How can we maximize our gospel impact? And I'll just, I'll be honest here because I'll take a steal, steal one from Paul. And he said, hey, imitate us. Here, here's my goal personally. Lindsay and I talk about this. I look forward to the day when I can look at the elders of our church and say, I make money elsewhere. I don't even need a salary. Oh, I, I, I crave that day. I crave it. But here's what I hope. I hope that by the day or the time that we get there, that whether or not we took a salary wouldn't even matter to our church because we've been so overcome with generosity and we'll still do it. And instead, we can look and say, now we can go be a blessing to so many more. Why? Because Jesus changed us.